0: So I've learned how bright I can burn. I'm keeping every chapter in my story. No.
1: Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Mighty and Me by Molly Oldham from Bath, Ohio. Molly is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight, so hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about her and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal.
2: Hi, everybody. Steve, I don't think whistleblowers get enough credit for the really important role they play in the world. Seriously, the more complicated our society has become, the more we've had to depend on people who are on the inside to come out and sound the alarm about unsafe or illegal practices. You know, can you think of any famous whistleblowers?
1: Well, how about Edward Snowden? He's probably the most modern whistleblower, right? At least I can think of. He was working for the CIA when he revealed some global surveillance programs that, frankly, scared the hell out of everyone.
2: Oh, yeah. Snowden's a good one. Here's one that really resonated with me as a journalist. Deep Throat. You remember that one? Yes. Yes. That- that was the nickname Washington Post reporters Woodward and Bernstein gave their inside source while investigating the Watergate scandal. The, the guy would meet them in this parking deck in the middle of the night to spill the beans on illegal activity inside the White House. And nobody knew who he was for more than 30 years. They kept a secret. He finally came out on his own in 2005, and it turned out to be an FBI guy named Mark Felt.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I actually watched a documentary on him. Oh, did you ever see Dog Day Afternoon without Pacino?
2: Oh, good movie.
1: Right. That was where the true story of Frank Serpico, a New York City police officer who blew the whistle on corruption in the force.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, our episode today actually reminds me a lot of another movie, Silkwood. That was the story of the real Karen Silkwood, who worked at a nuclear facility and risked her life to come forward with concerns about safety practices there. She ended up dying in a mysterious car crash on her way to meet a reporter.
1: I remember that story.
2: Now, we have no idea if David Box had plans to be a whistleblower at the Ohio uranium processing plant where he worked, or if his gruesome death was even murder let alone a conspiracy to silence him. So I'm just going to tell his story and you decide for yourself.
1: Ah, fair enough. You know, I don't know this one, so lay it on us.
2: This story began in June of 1984. It was a Sunday, 11 at night, and Dave Bach pulled into the parking lot of a white castle to meet his carpool buddy, Harry Easterling. Dave lived in the Cincinnati suburb of Loveland, and each work night he met Harry at White Castle, and then they took turns driving the rest of the way to work. It was 30 miles away, in Fernald. Fernald is on the border of Hamilton and Butler counties. It's farm country, as rural as any stretch in southwestern Ohio. But rising out of that sea of corn and wheat and soybean was a sprawling factory complex ringed with barbed wire and security guards. That's where the Fernald Feed Material Production Center was. It was a deceptive name. If you talk to people back then, they'd tell you they thought the company produced dog food. But you don't need barbed wire and security guards to protect dog food. Now, this plant was owned by the U.S. Department of Energy and was one of only a few plants in the country that processed high-grade uranium, specifically for use in nuclear weapons. Remember, this was the era of the Cold War with the old Soviet Union. If the good folks around Fernald knew what was going on in there, they probably would have been building bomb shelters behind their barns. The plant was operated by a private company called National Lead of Ohio. Workers referred to their employer as simply NLO. Anyone hired there had to sign agreements that they would never talk about their jobs, not even to family. Fines and prison terms were threatened for anyone who did. David Box was hired there three years earlier as a pipe fitter. He worked in the maintenance division his job to maintain and repair equipment in the plant including making sure filters and dust collectors and all those very important safety measures were working at their very best co-workers said he knew their safety depended on him doing their job well and he took it very seriously he would often caution them about work they were doing making sure they were following the rules to avoid radiation poisoning. David Box was not an Ohio native. He was born in Staten Island, New York, the middle of three boys, but his parents moved them to Ohio as children, and David finished growing up in the Cincinnati area. In his early 20s, he met and married his wife, Carlene. They had three children, a couple of boys and a girl, And Dave paid the bills as a laborer, working at a handful of Cincinnati area manufacturers. In the late 1970s, the marriage failed. But after the divorce, David and Carlene remained friends, and David, a very active father in the lives of his three children. His kids were on his mind after he left his car in that White Castle parking lot and hopped into his carpool buddy's truck. Harry Easterling said as they drove to Fernald that night, David talked about having spent the weekend with his kids and plans for an upcoming family vacation to Florida. He was pleasant, nothing out of the ordinary, a very routine drive to work. Upon arrival at Fernald, the pair clocked in, changed into their work clothes then stepped through a sanitizing shower before attending a meeting during which they were handed their assignments. Harry saw David for a meal break at 4 a.m. David showed him his brand new lunchbox. Then Dave left Harry and went back to work. It was around 4.45 a.m. At 7 a.m., Harry was surprised to see David missed a mandatory meeting. Here's Harry Easterling in an interview he gave to Unsolved Mysteries, Back in 1994. Approximately 7 o'clock that morning, we had a safety meeting in a conference room in Plant
1: 4. We uh, showed up for the meeting, but Dave wasn't there. Walked back over to the maintenance building, put my tools away, and noticed that Dave's toolbox was still
2: open. So I thought, well, he's probably working overtime. At 8 a.m., Harry punched out and waited for David to join him at the time clock for the ride home he didn't show. Harry waited a while longer, but he had an appointment with a real estate agent in a nearby township. He had his eyes on a house there. Maybe Dave was working late. Harry figured he'd drive to check out the house with the real estate agent, then run back to the plant to see if Dave was ready. He left a note for Dave explaining this plan. But when Harry returned to the plant after that brief house hunting trip... The note was still where he'd left it on Dave's work toolbox, and nobody had seen him. Harry tried to excuse the odd behavior. Maybe Dave had been pulled away on some urgent task and lost track of time. Harry waited a bit longer, then he scratched out a second note. Dave waited till 10:45, finally went home. Sorry, Harry. The next night, Harry went back to that restaurant parking lot, figuring Dave would be there with an explanation. And Dave's car was there, but not Dave. Harry rested a hand on the hood of the car. It was stone cold. He began to realize Harry's car hadn't left that spot since the night before. Something was wrong. Very wrong. Back at the Fernald plant, after Harry had left when he couldn't find Dave, a couple of other co workers thought they found Dave box. Or rather, what remained of him. The two men were responsible for getting a vat ready for production. The vat was four feet wide, ten feet long, and filled with a slurry of chemicals that were kept at 1,350 degrees Fahrenheit. 1,350 degrees. It was like molten red lava. The slurry was used to shape and mold uranium into ingots. The first worker, Bill Welch, peered into the vat and thought the slurry looked odd, with some kind of flotsam that looked out of place. His co-worker, David Allen, took a look. He thought it looked odd too, but they shrugged it off. It wasn't until later, after Harry Easterling had sounded the alarm and the company realized Dave Bach was missing, that those two employees realized what they might have been looking at. The Hamilton County Sheriff was called. David Box was reported missing. To get a better look at that weird sludge in the vat of Plant 6, the vat was cooled and drained. It took three days. And then they had to take extraordinary measures to handle the contaminated material, wearing fume hoods and limiting hands-on contact with samples. As investigators used chisels to break up the hardened slag, they found some things that shouldn't have been there. Pieces of a walkie-talkie. Wire from a pair of safety glasses. A name tag clip. Steel toes from a pair of work boots. They also recovered a ring of keys. An investigator took the keys to Dave's toolbox. One of the keys fit. They also found something to suggest Dave didn't simply chuck his belongings into the lava. They found small chunks of what looked like bone. And then this. Stainless steel wire formed into three connecting loops. It was never determined what the wire was, but those who looked at it thought, gee, that looked a lot like a restraint. As if one wire had been wrapped around one ankle, another loop around a second ankle, and a third loop around one of those hooks that hung above the vat so a lid could be lowered over the furnace. Now, this vat was four feet tall. You couldn't just fall into it. There was a ladder that could reach the top of the vat when necessary, but an accident was out of the question. Besides, as investigators attested, you couldn't get within ten feet of this hellfire without burning from the heat of it. So rule out accident, and there are only two options left: homicide or suicide. And authorities chose suicide. Without any evidence of a murder, they believed Dave chose to end his life by climbing up and into the vat of 1350 degree liquid. This theory surprised a lot of people, including some of Dave's co-workers who couldn't envision it happening. The opening of the vat on top was long and narrow. You couldn't just throw yourself into it. You'd have to climb the ladder and slide yourself into it. Who could withstand that kind of pain? And long enough to make sure their entire body was inside. Whatever happened, investigators were able to take an educated guess as to when it happened. The VAT records its temperature, and just after 5 a.m., remind you, that's not long after Dave left the meal break that he had shared with his buddy Harry, the VAT recorded that its temperature dipped 28 degrees. Not a huge blip compared to the 1,350 degrees that the VAT stays constant, but still an anomaly that had no explanation. David's family never thought it was suicide, not for a minute. He'd spent a happy and contented weekend with his kids, making plans for their Florida vacation. Here's David's daughter, Casey Drake, also talking to Unsolved Mysteries some 25 years ago.
0: I know my father did not commit suicide. There was no reason for him to commit suicide. Um, He had purchased groceries for the week. Um... He was planning a vacation with me and my younger brother for the following summer to Florida. Um, He paid all of his bills for the month. There was no reason for him to commit suicide.
2: But the more authorities learned about David, the more they defended their suicide theory. Dave's divorce had been facilitated by his drinking. He didn't want the divorce, promised to change. But it was too late to save the marriage. After the divorce, he tried to get his alcoholism under control, but it was a hard fight. He was hospitalized three times and tried to kill himself with some pills once. Also, several years earlier, he had been diagnosed with mild schizophrenia. He was on medication and hadn't been prone to hallucinations or anything like that. In a search of his home after the disappearance, turned up his pills, and proved he'd been taking them appropriately. But still, investigators added that to their list of why suicide was a strong possibility. But a few months after Dave's disappearance, something happened to tilt the scales in favor of those who believed it was murder. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. Alda. must not take yourself too seriously, and In December of 1984, a report by the Cincinnati Enquirer revealed NLO's Fernald Uranium Processing Plant had released a huge plume of uranium dust into the environment and that it wasn't a solo event. A flawed filter and pressure monitor may have been leaking large amounts of radioactive material. The company said the report was exaggerated and that everything was fine. And guess what? There was nobody who could come forward to say anything different. The story slowly faded away. Well, for a while. It took another couple of decades, but an investigation later revealed the plant had been poisoning the air and water wells in Fernald for years. The 200 tons of radioactive dust particles it had released in its existence had in essence made Fernald the country's third largest nuclear waste dump by default. All of this knowledge only fueled the theory that David Box knew something that had gotten him killed. And then there was this. In the spring of 1985, so that's less than a year after David disappeared, a 33-year-old worker at the factory named Larry Hicks died when a piece of equipment in the plant malfunctioned and doused him with uranium particles. Five days later, he began complaining of fatigue and heart palpitations. He died at the hospital. His widow, Diane Hicks, left with three children to support wanted his organs tested so she could prove his death was job-related. And L.O. insisted the uranium dousing had nothing to do with her husband's death and denied workers' compensation benefits. But then his wife learned something really strange. She learned that his liver, kidneys, spleen, and some of his bones had been taken out prior to his funeral. The government had taken his organs, organs that she learned are the very organs where uranium is absorbed. The evidence she needed to prove the plant was responsible for her husband's death was gone. She attempted a lawsuit anyway, but lost after a long, drawn-out fight. For people looking for a conspiracy, this only added to the fire. This was a plant that would deny uranium exposure killed an employee, then steal his organs so no one could prove otherwise. This was a plant that was proved to have released so many toxins into the air and water, it essentially became the third biggest toxic waste dump in the country. And this was a plant where a father of three, working a typical shift and giving no signs of any grief in his life, would turn up in a vat of molten lava. This case has been covered extensively by other media that have added more details. That 1994 Unsolved Mysteries episode, they interviewed an employee who saw David even later in his shift. He said David was talking with his supervisor in a pickup truck with windows rolled up, something he found odd because it was a hot and muggy night. An hour later, he then saw Dave walking toward a different building than the one he knew that he was assigned to. That appeared to be the last time anyone saw David alive. And just last year, the Cincinnati Enquirer did a lengthy series and a podcast. It's the third season of Accused. Among things the Enquirer team found out, there was another Fernald employee who told authorities he knew David's death was murder, and named the killer. Talk to that manager. He knows a lot more than what he's saying, the informant said. But it never changed the minds of investigators who, even today, insist David's death was suicide. The Inquirer also interviewed a man named Daniel Arthur whose job was to oversee safety at the Fernald site. He was hired one month before Dave's death in 1984. He was the lead auditor, but came to believe that nobody was reading his audits. He was concerned about times he was told to ignore some parts of the complex, voiced concern that the plant was bringing in plutonium when it wasn't licensed to do so, and told his supervisors that half of the routine maintenance operations were, quote, terribly inadequate. That's when his bosses started writing him up for little things, accusing him of taking excessive time off or having a bad attitude. Daniel Arthur said he saw the writing on the wall. Convinced they were coming after him, he said he quit, but left them with a long list of things he was concerned about. Fernald ceased production in 1989, and many of the things cited by Arthur as he was leaving were the very reasons given for closing the plant. The government embarked on a 20-year project to clean up the property. Some of the waste was shipped to Nevada and buried. Nearly five tons of waste and contaminated soil was buried right there in Fernald. It can never again be used for businesses or residential purposes. Today, it's a nature preserve. There's one other element of the story I want to mention. It involves an investigative reporter named D.C. Cole. Cole spent years, beginning in the early 90s, researching the plant, the scandal surrounding it, and David Bach's disappearance. He became convinced that, that David Box was a would-be whistleblower who was silenced when he resisted attempts to get him to go along. Here's D.C. Cole talking to Unsolved Mysteries.
1: On the night that David Box died, he had been working in Plant 8. Plant 8 had released four times more radioactive contaminants into the environment than any other plant at the plant site. Why he was killed... I think he knew something. And I think he had to deal with Plant 8. I think he had to deal with the releases, uh, the threat to the public health and the environment.
2: Cole died in 2016. Technically, the case of David Box is still unsolved. And since the teacup of bone fragments found in the radioactive slag couldn't be proven to be his, Most reports refer to him as simply missing. So, Steve, what are your thoughts on this one? I I just don't buy
1: it that it was a suicide. I don't think you can climb up onto that vat and not run away in terror. And you're talking about a guy who knew all the safety protocols. He obviously knew what he was dealing with here. Who would ever want to go out that way?
2: It's too gruesome. And physically, I don't know how you do it. I mean, it's. You know, it's not like you can walk to the edge of a volcano and throw yourself in. You would have to climb into this thing. I, I, I just don't see physically how that could be suicide. Right. I, I was
1: watching a documentary on Chernobyl and these guys flying in a helicopter way over the event. These guys died pretty quickly in life of cancer. I mean, this stuff is horrible. There's no way that you. this is the way you choose to die.
2: I'll bet that there have been some studies done on the people of Fernald. I know a lot of Fernald homeowners were warned to stop drinking their water, but I'm wondering if anybody's ever gone back and done a study on how many people in that community died from cancer and whether it's a higher rate than other communities, because two tons of nuclear waste tossed into the air over your homes and into your water wells, there's an impact Horrible, Horrible. You
1: know, uh, Neil Armstrong, uh, when he was in the Air Force, he was stationed in Nevada near a uh, bomb testing site and his young daughter ended up dying from cancer at a very young age. This exposure, yeah, obviously I think he knew something and he was gotten rid of.
2: Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, neither of us are big conspiracy theorists, but I think in this case, I think we both agree this wasn't suicide. That way.
1: That's it for tonight, listeners, for photos, news, clippings, and more. On this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com.
2: Now, about tonight's featured musical artist. Her name is Molly Oldham. And I want to give a big thank you to Ohio Mysteries listener, Teresa Rush, for pointing out her story in the Akron Beacon Journal. Molly Oldham lives in Summit County's Bath Township, and she attends the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, where she studies musical theater. Molly also happens to be in the middle of a battle with brain cancer. She was diagnosed a year and a half ago and has just undergone her second brain surgery. And her mom, Bonnie, said she's doing well. She had very good odds that the first surgery was going to take care of it, but it didn't. Molly told reporter Carrie Clausen, Being diagnosed with cancer anytime is just a different form of tragedy. The second time around, you know exactly what's coming, in a way. You know the pain, the physical, emotional, and mental struggle already. I exactly know how it feels and how hard it is to get back up, but I know I can do it. Now, there is much more to Molly than cancer. She also has a beautiful voice and some songwriting skills. She's been using those talents to fundraise and advocate for pediatric cancer patients. In December, Molly professionally recorded her first single, Mighty and Me, through a program called Cancer Can Rock. She co-wrote the song with Utsa Bargava and Caitlin Thomas of Berklee College of Music in Boston. She explained the lyrics. Positive doesn't always mean happy. Just like strong doesn't always mean a brave face. I've also had to process a lot, and I've had a ton of bad days, and that's okay.
1: So have another listen to Mighty and Me by Molly Oldham, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
0: When life was just birthday cake and tire swings Summer camp and water wings A distant memory Now I say I'm feeling okay So I can just make it through the visiting hours I can burn I'm keeping every chapter